Today's scripture reading will be in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. That's on page 1019 in the Pew Bible if you're reading from it. Verse 11, it says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, just a word of announcement. We're wrapping up, as you can tell, if you had your Bible open or we're looking at it, because the passage ends at verse 18 and starts First John. So we are wrapping up Second Peter this week. This has been a good several months, I trust, for us as a church as we've journeyed our way through First and Second Peter, these two letters. And um, we're going to say goodbye to them for now. So uh, Lord willing, in the next uh, three weeks, we're going to be doing a short sermon series that we've entitled Gifted. Um, we're going to look at spiritual gifts and how God has uh, particularly wired the body to minister to itself with the gifts that it is given. So if you have ever kind of wondered and questioned uh, what your spiritual gift is, what how the Lord has particularly gifted you, um, we hope that this series will be uh, eminently practical to help at least move that process forward. Um, we as pastors are, are planning an inventory for you to complete so that we can begin compiling some things so that then we can better shepherd you and shepherd this body. Um, because we believe that the body is built up when the giftedness of the body is tapped into and utilized and strengthened. It's not when I stand up and just preach sermons. So we, uh, we want to really be strategic about that. So please be praying for us and enter into that. When you get that survey, we hope you'll do it, invest in it, give us your honest feedback. And so that we can begin working on that and compiling something that we hope will be helpful for us as a church. So we're going to look at all the kind of key passages in the Bible, three of them, three big key passages. Pastor Ted's going to start with Ephesians four next week. And then Jonathan's going to take us to Romans 12. And then I'm going to conclude the series with a look at first Corinthians 12. So we hope you will be praying for that. That series will take us up till mother's day. So all that to say, let's get into second Peter chapter three and wrap up this letter. In 1987, 
the rock band from Athens, Georgia, R.E.M., released their album Document. And on that album, there was a song that's become very well known. It's called It's the End of the World as We Know It, parentheses, and I Feel Fine. I have no idea to this day, having listened to that song probably 50 times, how it has anything to do with the end of the world. <laughs> Maybe those of you who know something about the historical background of that song can fill me in, but it's not readily apparent on the, in the lyrics exactly what Michael Stipe, the lyricist and singer, is referring to. However, it is interesting that the theme is, it's the end of the world as we know it, and... I feel fine. I don't think that is the typical response of most people when they think about the end of the world. Perhaps it is. But perhaps that feeling is a bit ungrounded and naive. Because when Peter is writing here in 2 Peter chapter 3 about the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, he assumes that it's going to be fine for Christians but it's not going to be fine for those who are not Christians. In fact, he says it's going to be a day of great distress and destruction, as he says in verse 7. But he concludes this letter, starting in verse 11, by making application of all that he's been saying up to this point. He says in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, that is, as Jonathan preached last week, when the day of the Lord comes and the heavens pass away, verse 10, with a loud noise and the elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. When the, according to verse 7 and verse 6, the world will perish and be kept for judgment and be destroyed. On that day, when all these things are to be resolved, he says, what sort of people ought you to be? You notice all of these, all this end times talk that Peter has been doing in chapter three, where he's been talking about the coming day of the Lord and the second coming is all meant to shape our behavior. It's not meant for speculation. It's not meant for curiosity. It's meant to impact morality. That's what all theology is for. All theology, all preaching, all doctrine, all Bible study is meant to transform us. It's meant to make us a certain sort of people. This stuff that we learn and hear is meant to find its way into our heart and eventually out into our lives and shape the way we behave. And Peter says in this conclusion to his second letter that there are three things that the second coming of Christ ought to, I should say three effects that the second coming of Christ ought to have on us. It should make us an expectant people a diligent people and an observant people, an expectant people, a diligent people and an observant people. And I want to show you those in the text this morning. 
And these three things really aren't new. If you've been tracking with us through first and second Peter, this is old hat. It's, it's, he's reviewing what he's already talked about and just kind of driving it home and driving it down a little deeper into their lives and reminding them of what he's already said. And Peter has a way of doing that. He reminds and then he reminds again. And so the first thing he reminds them of what sort of people they ought to be is that they're to be expectant. We see that in verses 11 through 13. Let's look at those verses together. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be. I'm, I'm reading and preaching from the Holman Christian Standard Bible this morning, so translation may be a little bit different. It's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. Verse 12, as you wait for and earnestly desire, some translations have, I think the SV has hasten, hastening, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God, the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and new earth where righteousness will dwell. Now notice, twice in the span of those three verses, Peter mentions the concept of waiting. He says in verse 12, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming day of God. And then he says in verse 13, but based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth. And then in verse 14, he says it again. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things. Now, we've all waited. And most of our waiting is not the sort of, sort of, sort of uh, waiting that we think of as a positive experience. The waiting in the doctor's office. The waiting in the car pickup line. The waiting in the grocery store. The waiting in traffic. I mean, most of that is involuntary waiting. It's an inconvenience to us. We don't like to wait. We like to have it our way now. But this kind of waiting that Peter is describing is a very active waiting. It's a very urgent waiting. It's a very expectant waiting. It's in fact anticipation for something. It's not just waiting in some general sense for something to happen. It's anticipating something to happen. And when you anticipate something, that looks different. That kind of waiting is different from a passive sort of waiting, right? It has, a, it has a way of shaping our attitudes and our emotions and our behavior. And that's the kind of waiting that Peter envisions for us here. He says, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming day of God. Do you know we are to wait for and earnestly desire Jesus' return? We're not just to look forward to it. We're to anticipate it. We're to actually think about that day and thrill and joy to well up in our hearts because for us as Christians, the return of Christ is a day of wonderful joy to be anticipated. He says in verse 13, based on his promise, what do we wait for? We wait for the new heavens and new earth. That's what we wait for because Jesus is bringing that back when he comes he is going to renew and reshape and remake this present heavens and earth into a place where there's no more sin and no more curse, but only where righteousness dwells. And that's the hope of the Christian. That's the hope of the church. 
It's the hope that was promised back in Isaiah 65 and 66, where twice Isaiah writes, there is a new heavens and a new earth coming. And it's the new heavens and the new earth that Revelation 22 and 22, 21 and 22 envisioned for us. Read those chapters if you need a, a reminder of what those days are going to be like. But the new heavens and the new earth, Peter summarizes as the place where righteousness will dwell, where there will be full conformity to the will of God in the earth, where there will be no more sin, no more curse, no more fall, no more effects of the fall, where death and tears and disease and strife and disaster will be no more. That's the positive side that Peter has in mind, which is why it's an eagerly anticipated day. It's like Christmas. It's, it's a day in which we look forward to because it's a day that's going to bring us a great gift that we have been longing for and desiring. It's a day in which we will unwrap and unravel the thing that our heart most wants which as Christians is a place where we can dwell with God without sin. That's what the Christian desires. The Christian anticipates that we look forward to that. We long for that. We earnestly desire that while we don't love everything about the way it's going to happen. And while our heart shouldn't rejoice in the destruction of the ungodly at one level, At another level, because of the vindication of God's justice and righteousness, it will be something that we will rejoice in. But the the, the way in which this earth is going to be shaked and rocked and dissolved, as Peter says, can be quite frightening to think about. We shouldn't be unalarmed by that and callous to that. In fact, the fact that Peter talks about the heavens passing away and the elements burning and dissolving and the earth being disclosed and being melted and the godly being ungodly being destroyed should make us greatly concerned. But Peter's main point here is that this day should be a day full of anticipation for us. And in fact, it's interesting that the ESV uses the word hastening. In verse 12, hastening the coming day of God. And if you think about that, hastening implies that we can actually speed it up. We can actually make the coming of Christ come sooner. Now you say, wait, I thought no one knew the day or the hour. And you're exactly right. No one knows the day or the hour. We can't predict the day when Jesus will return. But Peter seems to allude to here that by our obedience, by our godliness, by our holiness, by our prayers, by our obedience to the Great Commission, we can actually hasten that day to come. We can actually bring it to pass. That's why we pray in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in God's kingdom to come. Why would Jesus pray for it if he didn't plan on answering it? Tell us to pray for it. So we should pray for that. We should also pray and labor to preach the gospel. Because it's in Matthew 24, 14 that we hear that promise come 
This gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's meant to be a motivation for the church to get the gospel out. Because when the gospel has reached all the nations, the day of the Lord will come. So this doesn't undermine the fact that God is sovereign, but it does involve and support the fact that we are responsible. In fact, we play a key role in awaiting that day. And how can we, how can we anticipate it and not work for it? You know, how can we anticipate that day and labor for that day and strive for that day and yet be indifferent to prayer and the gospel? We can't. If we really anticipate the coming of the Lord and desire that day, then we're going to do all the things that Peter's been teaching us to do, which is to love one another, to pursue godliness, to reach the world, to take the gospel out. So that's the first thing. We are to be an expectant people. Secondly, we are to be a diligent, a diligent people. And this is found in verses 14 through 16. Peter says, therefore, so again, he's making application in light of the coming new heavens and new earth where righteousness will dwell. Therefore, dear friends or beloved, while you wait for these things, make every effort, be diligent to be found at peace with him without spot or blemish. So he says, since the new heavens and the new earth are coming, And since the new heavens and the new earth will have righteousness dwelling in them, be righteous. Pursue righteousness. That's what he said, right? In verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. So he says, while you wait for these things, while you wait for the new heavens and new earth, Make every effort to be found at peace with him without spot or blemish. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that since the new heavens and new earth are coming, and since only righteousness will dwell there, we need to make sure we're righteous. If only righteousness will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth, if that's a place where where righteousness lives, then our only chance of living there is righteous, is being righteous, correct? That's our only hope of getting there. So how do we get righteous? If we are, according to 1 Peter 2.24, unrighteous. Well, he tells us, make every effort to be found at peace with him. And I believe the reference to peace is to peace with God. It's a whole salvation context. So the question then becomes, how do we get peace with God? And you know, Romans five, one and two, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it comes through justification by faith that we get peace with God. Well, how do we get justified? First Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There it is. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, on the tree, 
so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Or 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. There it is. See, it's all in Peter. It doesn't have to be right in this text. You just step back and say, okay, where in the rest of Peter does he talk about this? And we, so let's put all that together. Okay. So it's Christ's death, righteous for the unrighteous, bringing us to God. His death pays for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, but so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now we got it. So through faith in Christ, we are counted righteous, declared righteous by God through Jesus's work for us on the cross. We enter into a new relationship with God through that. We are completely forgiven of all of our sins. We are given a righteous record, a title to heaven. But Peter says that that should make us diligent. It should make us pursue him and be, make an effort to be without spot or blemish. To, in the language of verse 11, to be a person of holy conduct and godliness. We should pursue what we've become in Christ. We should strive to be righteous just as we have been made righteous. We should strive to be what we are. And in fact, we should strive to be what Jesus is. Remember 1 Peter 1, 19, he's described as a lamb without blemish or spot. And so because he is the lamb without blemish or spot, he can die for all of our blemishes and spots so that God can justly forgive us of our sins through faith in him, give us a righteous record on which to stand and out of which we can now pursue with gratefulness and joy and gladness and no fear and condemnation, a life of righteousness, godliness, and holiness. In fact, let's look at first John, since we're kind of right here and go to first John chapter three, because John's talking about the same thing. This is why I love the Bible. You should be able to find in the Bible, other writers saying the same thing that other writers do. And in the Bible, what we see here is John saying the exact same thing that Peter's been saying. In fact, first John chapter three says the exact same thing. Notice what John writes. Look at how great a love the father has given to us that we should be called God's children. See, we don't earn that. We get called that through faith in Christ. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Say, we're going to be like him one day and we're going to be totally transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus when we see Jesus as he is. Now, what effect should that have on us? Verse three, everyone who has this hope in him, is that your hope? That one day you're going to be like him just as he is? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There it is. So he says, if that's your hope, if your hope is I'm a child of God now, I'm loved by my father in heaven, what grace he has lavished upon me in Christ to love me this way, to secure for me this inheritance, to give me this life. That's my hope that when he comes, I'm going to be like him. I want to be like him. Nothing. I don't want anything more than to be like Jesus. If, if I could get rid of all of my struggle with sin, I take it now. That's the Christian. Take it all. I'm not like Augustine. 
before he was converted who said, give me holiness, but not yet. I still like sleeping around with girls. We're not like that. We're like, take it now. I would take holiness now, all of it. I want it. That's the Christian. He says, if that's your hope, then you're purifying yourself right now and you're fighting your sin. And that's exactly what Peter's saying. He says, dear friends, while you wait for this, we've got some sanctification to happen. We've got some pursuit of godliness to happen. And that godliness involves, first of all, making sure we're at peace with God through Christ. So let me just ask you that question this morning. Are you at peace with God through Christ? Has God wiped away all your sins? Has God given you the record of Christ's righteousness? For most of us, that's yes. We've transferred our trust away from ourselves, put it completely in Jesus. We are right now saying another's life and another's death. I trust my whole eternity. That's a Christian. A Christian says not on me, on him. All my hope, all my trust is on Christ. If you're still saying God's going to accept me because I listened to him in sermons and basically lived a decent life and went to church. F, F, another's life, another's death. I trust my whole eternity. That's the Christian. We rely completely and entirely on what another has done for us. But that trust leads us to an active pursuit of godliness. That's been a clear theme through first and second Peter. I don't feel like I need any, any more time to labor that point. So in other words, we are to be a diligent, we are to be a diligent people. Verse 15, also regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. That's exactly what Pastor Jonathan was talking to us last week about. It's the same thing that Peter says in verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So the reason for the delay, Peter says again, is that we may be saved, is that there may may be another chance for more repentance, more forgiveness, more reconciliation with God, more peace with God, more the removal of spots and blemishes. That's what's holding up the new heavens and the new earth. And aren't we glad that we get to go spend eternity with that kind of God? I love the fact that my, that my father and my savior have not come back. My, that my savior is not here yet. Now I want it. You want it. But don't we love the fact that the reason he's delaying is so good. The reason for his delay is not because he just can't stand to be with us. It's kind of like, you know, some people wait, you know, and we as parents can, maybe you, maybe you grew up like this, or maybe you are this, I hope not. But, you know, sometimes we delay when our kid comes up to us and says, you know, will you come play ball with me? It's like, yeah, just a second. But really why you're delaying, cause you don't want to do it. You know, that's not God. He's not delaying his coming to be with us. He's actually trying to build the family. He's trying, to, he's trying to add to the brothers and sisters that we're going to get to spend eternity with. And so I want to go spend eternity with that kind of God. I want to go spend eternity with a God who's that gracious and that lavish and that patient. And so he says, the patience of the Lord is an opportunity for salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul 
So that's great. Peter and Paul are refer to each other as, or Peter refers to Paul as a brother, fellow apostle. He's written to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him. So obviously these readers have read some of what Paul has written. He speaks about these things in all of his letters in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. <laughs> so there's Peter, the apostle, acknowledging that some things that Paul writes can make him scratch his head a little bit sometimes. So if you feel that way, you're in good company. If you feel like, you know, Paul sometimes just, just sails over my head. Peter felt the same way. But nonetheless, notice what they're saying. They're saying, I and Paul, we write about the same salvation. We write about the same things. So don't, don't, don't say that Peter preaches one gospel and Paul preaches another gospel and Jesus preached another gospel from them. No, Peter, Paul, Jesus, we're all preaching the same message. And he says he speaks about these things in all of his letters. Notice the gospel centrality of the Apostle Paul. Notice the patience of the Lord, the salvation of God, the coming of Christ. Those are the themes of Paul's letters, are they not? And Peter says, we have the same theme. We have the same heart. We have the same mission. This is what Christian leaders desire. They, they speak about Things concerning salvation. They don't have time for dealing with little insignificant things. They're about the big things. They're about the main things. They're about Jesus and his coming and his dying and his coming again. But not everybody's like that. And not all leaders are like that. And that's why Peter in the third place tells us to be observant. To be observant. So we've seen be expectant, be diligent, and then be observant. And this starts in verse 17, actually verse 16, about halfway through. He says, the untaught and unstable twist them, that is the writings of Paul, to, to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led astray by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stability. So he's just coming back to all that he said in chapter two about false teaching. And let me just reiterate this for our reminder. There are people who twist scripture. Just mark it down. There are people who twist it, who pervert it, who make it say things that it doesn't say. My wife and I were watching the movie, The Apostle by, with Robert Duvall, 1998 movie that came out. Um, and this, ha this was not even on my mind when I was watching the movie. It's a, I mean, Robert Duvall wrote it, uh, starred in it, um, directed it, I think. And, and he represents this holiness Pentecostal preacher who basically kills a guy and is on the run from the law and goes down to Louisiana and plants a church and tries to build this community and all this stuff. And I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I have never heard so much twisting of scripture in my whole entire life. I don't think it was even intentional. He's trying to represent it like he's a faithful Bible teacher and stuff, but he applies to himself things that only apply to Jesus. I mean, like, and we gotta be aware of that. 
You know, I imagine a lot of innocent, I mean, I even went to Amazon and I said, I wonder if Christians have reviewed this movie. What do they say about it? And never has there been a more faithful telling of the Christian narrative. And I'm like, yeah, the gospel's in there. I mean, he preaches about Jesus and dying on the cross and, and, and forgiveness of sin and all that. It's in there in about three minutes of the movie. But then there's a lot of preaching and a lot of stuff that he says that's wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I hope they're talking about the fact that the gospel was in there and not all the other stuff that was going on. Because if not, we've got a lot of people who believe a lot of twisted stuff. And so scripture twisting happens. People say things and it sounds good, but it's not what the text is saying. It sounds right, but it's not there in the passage. So we must be very, very knowledgeable of the scriptures. We must be growing in that, which is why not just exposure to good preaching is essential, but you're reading through the scriptures, how whatever plan you have or in whatever frequency you do it, uh, pervading your mind and your spirit and your heart with the word of God is the best way to prevent this from happening. And that's why Peter says to be observant. And he calls us to grow verse 18 in the knowledge of Christ. We are to be continuing to develop and grow in grace and knowledge so that verse 17, we're not led astray by the error of lawless people and fall from our own stability. Brothers and sisters, it is possible you could have been in Christ for 45 years, but that doesn't guarantee that if you ignore this caution to be on your guard, that you're going to make it all the way. We have to be diligent right to the end. We have to be, we rest in the fact that we are secure in Christ. But again, that security yields a level of diligence and that diligence is manifested in the fact that we read verse 17 and we say, yep, I'm going to obey that. I'm, I'm, God doesn't speak idle words. When he says, be on your guard, he means be on your guard. And notice what these people do or why they do it. He says, the untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction. See, just like Jesus said, by your fruits, you're going to recognize them. If people are telling you things or you're hearing things that sound wrong or don't sound in line with the truth of scripture. Think about the person's background. Do they have any sort of training? Are they untaught? And then look at their life. Are they unstable? I mean, these guys never should have been listening to apostle EF, Robert Duvall in the story. In fact, one of the, one of the interesting points of the movie is when he comes down to Louisiana and he meets with this other reverend, this other pastor, sits down with him. And the pastor says, I don't know anything about you. I don't know anything about your background. Would that the church did that and would that the pastor would have spent more time before he aligned himself with, him, with the man. But lo and behold, the last scene of the movie is, um, you know, this apostle getting arrested while somebody gets saved in his church. Like something's, something's weird about that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you think that's a movie. No, that's reality. Let me give you an example. Anybody ever heard of Creflo Dollar? 
He's all over TBN, African-American pastor. I believe he's in Georgia. Maybe wrong about that. He, several months ago, the guy gets arrested for domestic violence against his daughter. And the next Sunday, he gets arrested, goes to jail for a period of time, gets out. Evidently, there was a trial, you know, to be held later on. But he stands up in his pulpit the very next week, and the man gets a standing ovation from his congregation. As, and the way it was cast was he's a prisoner for the Lord who's going to jail or was in jail because of trying to keep authority in his home. You know how kids are these days. They're just, you know, they're wild and the devil loves to pick on pastor's kids and stir up stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but did you take your fist and hit your daughter or threaten to do it? And the man has a church of thousands. And there's, there's not any whiff that that might be suspicious. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm not saying treat the guy like with no grace, but I'm just saying, is there some suspicion there that something funny might be going on? You know, Ugh. it's just, it's all over. It's all over the place. And so since we know all these things in advance, he says, be on your guard. And the way that we're at best on our guard is by growing, verse 18, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, growing in our understanding of the gospel and its impact on our lives and, and the character of Christ. I think that's what he means by growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's going to do. It's living in the great realities of the gospel and appropriating them to our lives and to our souls through prayer and obedience that we secure ourselves a stable footing and a readiness for the coming day of the Lord, a day which, as they say in First Thess- as uh, Paul writes in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, will be a day for Christians when Jesus comes back in which we will marvel at him and we will be ready. So are you ready? Are you ready? Are you right now? Are you living an expectant, diligent, observant life? Well, let's grow in that. Let's pursue that. Let's work that in because those are the people we ought to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of the second coming of your son. We thank you that when he returns... It will be a place in which righteousness will dwell. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be a destruction of all ungodliness. And there will be a complete and radical renewal. This earth is groaning presently for that, the revelation of the children, the sons of God. And we want to groan along with it and long along with it and anticipate along with it. If these if this cement underneath this building, if those trees outside these doors, if that sun that's shining down, if those clouds that are in the sky could shout one thing, they would shout to us, he's coming again and all will be made well and all will be made right because it is anti- the, the creation itself is anticipating that day. Lord, increase our longing, increase our diligence, increase our observantness our watchfulness, our caution. Help us to be seriously engaged 
in the Christian life and yet seriously secure as well. In Jesus' name, amen.